Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Today we're continuing our interview with Stephanie Hoover, the author of The Killing of John Sharpless, The Pursuit of Justice in Delaware County, published by the History Press. As we noted last week, we're speaking with Stephanie in honor of Black History Month. But what, again, does that mean? It means that Black history is American history, and as racial injustices continue to plague our democracy, we stand no chance of creating a more fair and equitable future if we remain unaware of what happened in our past. If you tuned in last time, you know that Stephanie's book is an effort to correct the record, to tell an untold story, and to bring the truth to light. Well, welcome back, Stephanie, and thank you again for taking time to share the story of John Sharpless and Samuel Johnson with us. Oh, thank you. I, I, I'm very much enjoying the conversation. Where we left off was Johnson had been taken into custody, and the initial hearing, what we would today call the arraignment, it was a farce, wasn't it? I mean, there was almost nothing learned about the events of that night in any factual way. There were baseless accusations flying back and forth in front of the magistrate judge, conflicting testimonies, witnesses who were clearly biased towards one predetermined outcome, which is make sure this black man pays, right? Um, There's about the only really interesting thing or potentially usable lead that comes out of this initial hearing is the notion of a possible accomplice, a man named Alexander Pritchett, who uh, Johnson had met while he was in prison some years earlier. The Pritchett Pritchett situation, I know that Pritchett uh, testified that Johnson had been involved in a previous violent uh, event where... um, According to Pritchett, Johnson had uh, killed a man by smacking him over the head and then took money out of his wallet. And Pritchett's point was that uh, Samuel Johnson supposedly had a history of this sort of violent uh, behavior. But Johnson vehemently said, you know, no such thing ever happened. And this was during the magistrate trial. Uh, nonetheless, they, they, the magistrate found that Johnson would be held over for trial in Dolphin County for the murder of John Sharpless. All that really was presented against uh, Samuel Johnson in the magistrate hearing was, as you, as you said, hearsay. Uh, the spurned woman, the guy who, you know, supposedly heard a jailhouse story of Johnson's confession of another murder. I mean, it was all, it was all very simplistic and very, uh, he said, she said, but nonetheless, the magistrate found it sufficient to bind Johnson over for trial. Now, when Johnson got to Delaware County, he sat in jail for Oh, I, as I recall, well over a year before his actual murder trial even started, he sat in the Delaware County prison, um, the Delaware County jail, I should say. Um, and he was found attorneys by a friend of the Sharplesses, coincidentally, 
uh, a man who was very much uh, appalled by the racist undertones and the activities of police and the society as a whole at the time and found Johnson and uh, defense attorneys who were, I know it's overused in this day and age, but they were sort of the dream team of the day. They were both white, wealthy, educated men. And the irony of that is that uh, the defense attorneys for Samuel Johnson really had far more in common with the murder victim than they had with the man that they were defending. But nonetheless, they they were very committed to defending Johnson and trying to prove that, you know, it just wasn't feasible that he was the man that did this. There were no witnesses. The, the widow didn't recognize him. There was really no case against him. In a sense, they were, they were arguing that uh, it's what we call the Saudi defense, right? The some other dude did it, right? Obviously, it was not an accidental death. You know, the, the evidence at the crime scene confirmed that he had been struck from behind by an instrument. It wasn't the horse's hoof, right, um, that, that got him. But, but there was no way that you could actually tie Johnson to this particular place at this particular time. It just could not be done. That was the defense's argument, wasn't it? Well, yes, and, and it was absolutely true. I mean, it wasn't even something that they had to manufacture, there simply was no witness that came forward and placed Samuel Johnson anywhere near the Sharpless Farm the night of the murder. If they had the truth on their side, right, the person that was not on their side was uh, Judge Clayton, right? And in your entire account of this particular trial, Judge Clayton stood out to me as somebody who, he was presiding over the trial, but he was certainly not presiding over the search for truth and justice. He had his own opinions that he came into the courtroom with, and he ran the courtroom the way that he wanted to, and it did not look anything like a fair and impartial trial in your account, largely thanks to this kind of imperious individual who basically thought he made the rules. Well, he did. And and even in closing arguments, he spent, I believe it was well over an hour, simply parroting uh, the prosecution's case. Um, he never encouraged the jury to look at the defense's side of things. He never encouraged the jury to look at the simple facts of the lack of evidence, lack of witnesses. Um, he was a guy who, uh, you know, he was on a career trajectory. He had a certain philosophy. He was not an unbiased judge. Uh, he was a, a very wealthy man. How he'd accumulated his money is up for question. But um, there were times where certain legal actions were delayed because Judge Clayton was touring Europe. I mean, the 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 goal of getting Samuel Johnson a fair trial and charging the jury with the proper legal instruction to offer a fair verdict, that was not Judge Clayton's priority. It really struck me, your account of this remarkable encounter between uh, the widow Sharpless 
and Johnson when uh, the widow is brought up onto the stand and Johnson is brought before her. And despite the fact that Johnson has actually been sort of given new clothes and has gained some weight in prison and he sort of looks a little better than he did before he went into prison owing to um, to those those factors, she does not positively identify him. She looks at him and she says, I can't say for certain that this was the man that was in my house before the entire courtroom. No, and and, and it was funny because um, the prosecutors put on this uh, sort of theatrical display of of flourishing a coat that Samuel Johnson supposedly wore during this crime and uh, really thought that he was going to present to Susan this uh, indelible image that would bring back her memory that this was indeed Samuel Johnson, like out of the blue after all this time. She was going to say, oh, yeah, you're right. You know, I changed my mind. Now I it was him. But she never did. She absolutely on the stand. And as I as I mentioned previously to the end of her life, she never, ever agreed with anyone who said that it was Samuel Johnson. And that's interesting because that that stand that she took, the figurative stand that she took, um, actually did affect the uh the deliberation process by the jury. You write that even though in the very first go-round of, um, you know, you've got 12, 12 jurors and, you know, for this to be murder in the first, they have to be unanimous, et cetera. Uh, you had some holdouts and you had a couple of men on that particular jury who at first were not certain. And uh, what exactly happened in the jury room Stephanie. Yeah, they took several votes and could not come to uh, a- any sort of unanimous decision. The the judge ordered them to remain in the courthouse. I think, as I recall, the judge placed cots up in like the attic area of the courthouse. He he wouldn't let the jurors leave. Not only were they not only were they not allowed to leave, they were actually provided bedding. They brought cots in and made them sleep there. But they, the the jury took several votes, could not come to a unanimous decision. The judge really, Judge Clayton was a bit confused by this. He thought that he had sufficiently given a charge uh, that explained to the jury what verdict he expected them to find. Uh, when the deliberations continued to the next day and there was still no verdict, uh, 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 he, the judge was confused, the prosecution was confused, but, but finally the, they, did, they did, after a great deal of debate amongst themselves, they did come up with a guilty verdict. You have in your book the photograph from the newspaper of the day announcing the verdict. Um, which was, of course, hotly anticipated. This was one of the biggest murder trials that the state had ever seen. I believe uh, there is somebody on record, I forget who, it might have been the judge, who actually had told the jury that this is the most important case that you know Pennsylvania had ever tried and so forth. I don't know whether you're allowed to say that anymore, frankly. I'm not an expert, but I just <laughs> it makes me wonder. <laughs> yeah, you're you're definitely you're you're probably definitely not allowed to say that and as much sympathy ha- one has for 
the murder victim and his family. I'm really not necessarily sure that it was the most important or largest case in Pennsylvania. It certainly was a notorious case, but, um, but he really was placing an onus on the jury here again, you know, he, the message was clear. He, he, there was a verdict that he wanted and he was going to convince the jury one way or another that, uh, that they were going to present it to him. And you write that throughout most of this, um, this time, you know, Johnson is fairly dispassive in the courtroom. I mean, he's quiet, he's reserved, he's not lashing out, he's not, you know, sort of um, yelling when something doesn't go his way. He just sort of sits there and is kind of quietly watching this whole time. Yeah, and you know what? I Part of me wonders if he fully understood the magnitude of what was happening to him. Perhaps that's why he was quiet. Another part that, and this is really uh, even more sad almost, is that based on his own life history, I think, unfortunately, in his mind, that maybe he always thought that he was going to be tossed into prison for one thing or another, because it's pretty much what had happened to him for the past how many years. And the frustration of sitting there as the prosecution is able to say, for the most part, it had to be him. Why did it have to be him? Well, just listen to us because it had to be him in the absence of any evidence. Yep, that's correct. I don't know how you live with that. So after the verdict, you have kind of an interesting couple wrinkles which emerge. And this actually recalled uh, one of our previous cases that we looked at, which was Frank Dupree in Atlanta in 1921, which is that immediately after Frank Dupree uh, is convicted of of you know killing a security guard in a in a botched robbery. Uh, you have these kind of appeals swing into play, right? And you have these petitions, which um, sort of begin to marshal in Johnson's defense after his conviction. And I want to bring in one of the through lines in your book here, which we haven't talked a lot about, but which is actually fairly important to understanding the the kind of culture of the time, the identity of the residents of the area at the time, which is that you had the Quaker community, which was a kind of very early champion for what we would now call human rights um, and for the the concern for the poor and for uh, for justice within um, the legal system. You have a, the Quakers are taking strong stands on a bunch of different issues. And Sharpless, as an elder in the Quaker Church, had actually been involved in one of the main committees which addressed issues that affected the lives of the poor and so forth. And so you have you write that in the period after Johnson's conviction, suddenly swarming his case are hundreds and then thousands of people who are advocating for reprieves, who are advocating for commutations. So how did how did that take shape, and what what impacts did it have? Well, the the first of all, I think the one thing that people realized throughout the trial was that Samuel Johnson did not have the capacity to defend himself um, uh, as 
perhaps someone of a higher intellectual capacity could have done. So, um, you know, there are, there are really rotten people in the world and there are a whole lot of good people in the world also that saw that and said, there is an inherent unfairness to this. You've got a man that really, uh, really had no means of communicating forcefully in his own defense. Um, and, uh, he was sort of railroaded into this. So that started. And then when the appeals process started, um, some some sort of rumors started coming out that maybe there were other people that were involved. And then, of course, the public picked up on that. And as you say, little by little, there was this growing sense that something about this case wasn't right. Eventually, the, the, the one petition had 5,000 signatures uh, to, to, to pardon Samuel Johnson. And when you realized, you know, I think that Delaware County at the time only had 75,000 residents, 5,000 signatures. Uh, It doesn't sound like much, but it really was substantial. Um, And then you started getting into um, more well-known people that were coming forward. The John Wanamakers of the world, former governors were coming forward. Senators were coming forward. Uh, uh, women, uh, which today we would call socialites, you know, um, their husbands were wealthy and well-known. They started coming forward. And as it, as it tends to do, thankfully, um, the more people that are discussing it, the more well-known those people are, the more other folks just want to know, what's this case all about? What's going on with this guy? You know, how did he end up in yeah. jail? You know, uh, do not ever underestimate the power of a well-organized ladies aid society, right? You got that right. You got that right. So then as these petitions are taking shape, he is sentenced to hang. He was convicted of murder in the first, right? Um, and yet, and yet unlike Frank Dupree, who we looked at last time, um, you know, Frank gets sort of, extension after extension, but he never actually gets his sentence commuted. Uh, Johnson, who really is kind of just waiting to see how all of this is unfolding, he actually wins the commutation. So what was the what was the lever there? What was what was the switch that flipped? Well here's the interesting thing about this. He had prepared himself to go to the gallows three times. Three times he was told, uh, today's your day, um, you know, have your last meal, prepare yourself. And then at the last moment was told that, um, nope, nope, you know, it's being postponed again. What happened finally was there were a number of other suspects who came to the forefront during these uh, attempts to get Johnson out of jail to overthrow his verdict. Um, one, I mean, and some of the, some of the theories were uh, far more possible than others. There, it was known that there was a group of robbers operating in Delaware County. Um, so the one theory was it was just these guys who'd been, you know, robbing without a hitch and maybe John Sharpless, fought them and that's how he was killed. Another theory even presented in the New York times was that a man named William Caldwell, 
uh, was actually the killer. And that was primarily based on the fact that he had these big protruding teeth and had a, had a prison record. Um, there was a group called the Fernwood Gang that was committing various crimes. But the one group that was most suspected of the robbery was a gang out of Philadelphia led by two guys named Wilson and Chopaz. It was to the point where there was sufficient evidence that a grand jury was actually called to um, determine whether Wilson and or Chopaz were going to be tried for the killing of John Sharpless. Meanwhile, Samuel Johnson's sitting in jail, which is odd in and of itself. Nonetheless, during this trial, um, <laughs> one of the guys, Chopaz, said, yep, it was us. We did it. Uh, I was there. Wilson's the one that actually killed Sharpless. So you're thinking, well, surely Samuel Johnson is going to be released from prison now. Nope. Nope. And unfortunately, because of a technicality, it was ruled that the grand jury was called illegally. Neither Chopaz nor Wilson were ever tried for Sharpless's murder. Meanwhile, Samuel Johnson is still sitting in prison. Now, the one thing that happened in Johnson's favor was a man by the name of James Beaver was elected governor of Pennsylvania. And he had seen action in Civil War, and he had been in some of the bloodiest battles of the Civil War. And um, it gave him a real sensitivity toward the value of human life. And one of the first things he did when he uh, took office was to um, help get Johnson's death sentence commuted to a life sentence, which still, when you think about that, um, it's it's lunacy when when you realize that the courts very nearly came close to prosecuting two other men for the murder, and yet Samuel Johnson still sat in prison. It, it, it seems really unbelievable, but it's exactly what happened. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com. There's a passage in your book that I would love for you to read uh, to us because I think it very deftly sums up everything that you have just been describing. It's on page 101. And, you know, as, as I read it, I just thought, you know, anybody with a rational mind looking at 
at this particular situation um, must have must have come to a different conclusion, and yet they didn't, right? And so, you know, the, the injustice of that just really, really lingers even today. It's that paragraph on 101 um, that starts, as others profited from Johnson's conviction. Would you just read that whole paragraph to us? As others profited from Johnson's conviction, public sentiment against it grew stronger. Very little felt right about the arrest and trial of Samuel Johnson, not the questionable ethics of the police, not the hunger of the press for exclusive stories with salacious headlines, not the testimony of convicted criminals and greedy acquaintances. Even the efforts of Johnson's defense attorneys seemed insufficient when the hanging of a man was a very real and likely outcome of the case. And on top of all of this, Anyone who could read a newspaper knew that two other men, Christopher Chopaz and Charlie Wilson, had also been indicted for the murder and only by means of a legal technicality avoided conviction. It was time for Pennsylvania's Board of Pardons to offer Johnson a chance at freedom or publicly present to the community at large its reasons for failing to do so. What was it like writing that when when you could see the whole case from a bird's eye view. I mean, were you just furious <laughs> when you were sort of putting that on, on paper? I went through, I went, it's almost like the, uh, the, the seven stages or whatever the stages. I mean, I went through such a um, transition of emotions back and forth, back and forth. Uh, first was disbelief. How in the world this man was even convicted to begin with. Then horror at the um, the police officers that were allowed to utilize such racist tactics. And then um, you go through a point where you see the Quaker community. And here again, John Sharpless was one of the loudest voices of the Quaker community. But you see them fighting for the life of a man who was accused of killing one of their own. And then you get to the sympathy for Susan and then utter respect for the strength that she mustered to not be bullied into fingering an innocent man. And then, yes, the pardon process. How, how crazy is it that a man is still sitting in jail when two other men are very likely responsible for the crime? So the gamut of emotion, um, you know, it's really, it, it, it's wide and varied, but most of all, you're just hoping against hope that there's going to be some sort of a happy ending for this man. Well, as you write, Johnson, his sentence is commuted from execution to life in prison, and he actually ends up living a very quiet life for the next 10 years. Um, tell, tell us what happened to him after that. It's, it's, it's like a, it's not a victory in the sense that he was freed, but at least he was spared the gallows. I guess one of the, one of the sort of ironic things about it is that Johnson was a model prisoner. Uh, and he was in Eastern state penitentiary, which is a notorious prison, uh, very rigid guidelines for um, separation of prisoners, one from the other, no very little interaction with other human beings. But there was something about Johnson that 
uh, he was comfortable in a very regimented setting. Um, so he was known by the warden as a, a, a passive man, a, a jovial man, never created any issues while he was in prison. Um, he shouldn't have been there. I, I think that that was well recognized by everybody. Nonetheless, he was. Um, on January 1st of 1900, uh, after he had been in prison for 10 years, six months, and nine days to be exact, the guard was making his rounds and passed by uh, Johnson's cell and saw that he was still laying in his cot. Um, and he told Johnson that breakfast was coming, you know, wake up or whatever conversation the guard would have had with a prisoner at that moment. The guard continued his rounds, came back a second time and noticed that Johnson was still in the exact same position. Um, it was then that they entered the cell and realized that he had passed away in his sleep. Um, so even though his quote unquote death sentence was commuted to life in prison, he still died in prison, uh, uh, probably an innocent man. We are still very much in the middle of Black History Month, and we are looking at cases in which race played a role or in which racial injustices were revealed in some way. Stephanie, what impact did the you call it the John Sharpless case, but I think we probably both agree it's the John Sharpless and Samuel Johnson case. Um, what impact did this case have on race relations in the Philadelphia era in those last years of the 19th century or as the 19th century became the 20th century? Were there any uh, reforms which were brought into effect? Was there a greater awareness of the fact that this man was tried and convicted largely because the police needed a, a scapegoat and he was black and that was enough for them? What, what impact did this case have? Well, one of the most significant things that occurred was there was, a, um, there was an election for uh, mayor and uh, one of the candidates was uh, well known to be quite corrupt, uh, and also had racist tendencies. And during that election at parades and gatherings, um, people in the crowds would literally yell Samuel Johnson's name, remember Samuel Johnson, as a means of educating those around them who may not have heard of the case to the fact that if you elect another corrupt mayor we're going to continue to have police officers who are going to view any black man as an easy target anytime they needed to close out a case. So the use of Samuel Johnson's name actually caused an upset. Uh, the corrupt mayor who by all accounts, uh, as we would say today, was well ahead in the polls and should have been an easy shoe in for the office actually lost his election. And it was in great part doing, uh, due to the fact that people did remember Samuel Johnson. They did remember the injustice of his case. And while it may not have helped him during his lifetime, it did have an impact on the political climate in Philadelphia, at least for that time period.
It's really remarkable. I mean, what a what a direct echo we have today of, say, the George Floyd protests, where one of the rallying cries was, "Say his name," right? Yep, exactly, absolutely, and it and it is it is horrifying that we are still in the midst of these same sort of battles. Um, and there is no, there is no easy resolution to, to the problems of race in this country, obviously. And, and I was never, uh, bold enough or dumb enough to think that a book that I would write would make a significant impact on those problems. But the one thing that I'm happy that I did, that I'm glad that I did, was I feel like I at least generated a part of the conversation. You know, this this is a historic problem, as evidenced by Samuel Johnson, as evidenced by this book, The Killing of uh, of John Sharpless. So at least I, I could do that small, uh, that small part of the work of perhaps coming to some resolution with the problems we face. But I think it's really, really important for people to read books like The Killing of John Sharpless because there are some folks, I think, that don't understand or maybe maybe try to ignore the fact that this is, this is an issue that's not new. You know, it hasn't been created by the media. It hasn't been created by any political party. It hasn't been created by any political philosophy. It's a problem that America has been grappling with since our inception. And we have to understand the root of it to get to the solution, at least in my opinion. Um, and that's why that's why I thought it was a, a case that needed to be written about. And if I could say one more thing about Samuel Johnson, that um, th- this may be this may be somewhat morbid, depending on how some folks feel about it. But um, when Samuel Johnson died in prison, after all of the indignities that he had already suffered in life, there was no one to collect his body. The practice at that time in that case was to donate the body to what was called the anatomical board. And that is the um, part of the practice of educating medical students, obviously, is to use human bodies. And as I say, it may sound morbid to some, but it is not to me because I believe that what he could not have done in life, which was perhaps, you know, contribute as much as he would have wanted to. He really did contribute at the end of his life to medical students, to knowledge, to science. Um, And the bodies that are donated to the anatomical board, they are treated, they are revered, they are treated with great respect. So what he did not find in his life, I do believe that um, it kind of, it kind of, makes me a little emotional. I do believe that he was able to contribute in death in some manner. No, thank you for, for mentioning that because that is, um, it is a small consolation, but it is a consolation, right? And um, that that does absolutely provide the dignity that he should have received in the last 15 years of his life. 
uh, that he finally did receive. So really, really appreciate your uh, your offering that to us. No, regarding regarding your um, concern about the continuing injustice. I mean, look, I, as I was reading your book, I was struck as a native Mississippian that this did not happen in the Jim Crow South, right? And it it doesn't take. It, this is an American problem. It is still an American problem, and it doesn't take a lot of historical imagination to reckon with the fact that Johnson's outcome would have been very different if he had been a poor white man as opposed to a poor black man. And don't ask a lot, you know, of the reader to uh, to consider that. I do want to ask you one of the again similarities with the Frank Dupree case that we were looking at last time uh, is that. In Frank's situation, it was 40 years later, it was in Atlanta, and I recognize that 1920s Atlanta is not 1880s Philadelphia. Sure, of course. Um, and yet, there are civil discussions that emerge in high-profile cases like this that transcend state lines, that transcend Mason-Dixon lines, right? And one of those is about capital punishment. Uh, Frank's case really brought to light the... Uh, practice of executing prisoners by the state of Georgia in a way that renewed certain calls for its abolition, right? Um, That would take some time, but Frank's case was one in which uh, he, uh, his death on the gallows did provide a piece of the story about how much longer are we going to continue this particular practice. Um, what impact did Johnson's case have, if any, on the discourse surrounding capital punishment in Pennsylvania? You know, uh, unfortunately, it it didn't change the fact that um, we have capital punishment in Pennsylvania. Uh, anytime a case like this occurs, it does sort of open the floodgates to newspaper editorials and, uh, you know, public speeches and groups getting involved in trying to um, uh, abolish the death penalty. Um, There was a case later in the 1930s um, in Pennsylvania where a woman was convicted of murder and she was the first woman to face the electric chair. That like Samuel Johnson's case in the 1880s, should we still hang uh, prisoners? Should we have a death penalty at all? The 1930s case uh, questioned how humane, how justifiable the death penalty was. Both cases raised questions. Neither case changed it. The only thing that happened in the latter case in the 1930s was uh, Shortly thereafter, the the state decided, well, electrocution's not really all that humane. Let's just go with lethal injection. So, yes, it raises questions, and there are strong feelings on both sides. But, um, you know, the death penalty still exists in America. This is a trying story, uh, Stephanie. It is full of sorrow and struggle and anger and... Um, everything that the record of injustice uh, breeds, but we do have to hear it, and we cannot turn our eyes away. This is part of the American um, experiment as its failures, right? Uh, So I want to thank you for bringing that to us and for 
for helping us to see with with clearer eyes just how much work there is left to do. I have one bonus question, so to speak, for you, uh, which is one of these other through lines that um, exists in your account of Sharpless and, and Johnson. Uh, Stephanie, you have been researching and writing about Pennsylvania history for quite a long time. You've got a number of books under your belt. And I just have to ask, prisons. You spend a lot of time talking about prisons. You've got Eastern State Penn. You've got Moimansing. Tell me, where does your interest in the clink come from? Because it is just all throughout this particular book. Do you know, I am fascinated by... I'm not even sure it's so much prisons themselves, Ben, as as much as I'm fascinated by the ways that we think that we can mold and change our fellow men, man, our fellow man and women. Um, Eastern State, for instance, just hor- horrifically, uh, uh, the intentions were horrific from the beginning. There was really a very clear intent that you could not see other human beings except for a few minutes each day. The prisoners even had their own little tiny recreation yards attached to their cells. Um, Nobody cared if these horrific places were overrun. Uh, uh, Eastern State was built with 450 cells originally. I think by the time Johnson was there, there were 1,100 people. Um, we, we think that taking human beings and placing them in the worst environment you could imagine is somehow going to deter them from learning criminal activity, deter them from committing criminal activity. Um, in my view, from a historical perspective, all it does is create more anger and less hope. And I think that that is the worst condition a human being can experience. And that's the absence of hope. And putting someone in a cell under horrific circumstances, treating them horribly, feeding them horribly, clothing them, not providing proper hygiene or whatever the circumstances were in the prisons in in uh, Samuel Johnson's day, and some still say exist today, um, I am fascinated by the fact that we somehow believe that that is what's going to solve our crime problem or make people suddenly perfect human beings. Um, I don't, I don't know how much uh, data has to be collected to to illustrate that it really. Uh, in many cases, doesn't work. I don't know why we keep trying it. Um, so it's it's not only the prisons themselves, the physically constructed buildings that that men and women are warehoused in. It's the philosophy behind them. Um, I'm just fascinated that we think we can force someone to be less violent by inflicting violence, or that we can force them to be m- more caring by being less caring toward them. It is an answer that is admittedly well above my pay grade, but I think here again, just uh, spurring the questions, just encouraging conversation, 
has got to at least be one of the steps along the way to finding a better way to do things. Well, you've done us a great service by bringing these accounts uh, to our attention and only the sort of careful and patient and sustained investigation of a researcher can do that sometimes. It's It goes beyond sermonizing. It goes to showing us here is what happened and letting us take the ball and run with it from there. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us. It has been a real privilege to have you. Oh, thank you. I've, I've really enjoyed it and I really appreciate being here with you. Thanks as always for listening. Our guest today has been Stephanie Hoover, the author of The Killing of John Sharpless, The Pursuit of Justice in Delaware County, available from ArcadiaPublishing.com. Join us next time as we interview John DeSantis, who discovered a race riot and massacre in 1800s Louisiana, whose story had never been fully told. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with Arcadia Publishing and the History Press, and is a member of the Killer Podcasts Network. A special thanks to our producer, Bill Huffman, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, production director, Bridget Coyne, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. To find out more about Crime Capsule and our dozens of other shows, visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.